When you're serving a non-Orthodox community, it's imperative that you be as lenient as possible in order to make Torah relevant to them. In other words, even if you think that a machmir position might be more intellectually honest or called for or praiseworthy or holy, when somebody who's not committed to the system is asking you a shayla, what's behind that question is not only can you be lenient on this point, what's, what's behind that question is, is Torah relevant to me as well? Can it be relevant to me as well? And that to me is the big misfire of the chief rabbinate. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. In our previous episode, I spoke with Shoshana Kitsch-Jaskal about the challenge to faith that takes place when some rabbis betray their calling by not acting as they should. When leaders fail us, they leave wreckage in their wake. The wreckage of failed expectations, of disappointment, of crisis, and of course, the practical issues like, as Shoshana related, needing to wait years for a get and more. Today's episode is a type of follow-up to last week's. The Israeli chief rabbinate was formed with positive goals in mind, and there are some wonderful representatives of Torah Judaism who work for that institution. But as Lord Acton said in 1887, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. We're certainly not there yet, but political power in the hands of the rabbinate, which is the case in Israel in certain areas of halakha, such as marriage, divorce, conversion, and kashrut, has led to serious problems that themselves are violations of Torah. And while I'm positive that most rabbis in the rabbinate have noble goals, it still brings to mind a different aphorism. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Rabbi Aaron Leibowitz, the founder and president of Hashkacha Pratit, decided to do something about it. You might agree with his solutions, and you might not. Some of what he suggests may sound quite radical. But either way, remember that we often witness a repeating pattern— There's a serious problem that leadership fails to address, so someone else decides to do something, and then he or she is condemned by the leadership that failed to act. The response should be that if leadership wants a response or solution that it can accept, then leadership shouldn't drag its feet and wait for someone else to do something. We'll get to our conversation with Rabbi Leibowitz in just a moment. First, let me remind you to share this podcast, rate The Orthodox Conundrum, and write a review on Apple Podcasts, and let us know what you think on the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook. Check out jewishcoffeehouse.com for The Orthodox Conundrum and other great podcasts, and remember to subscribe to them on your favorite podcast provider. We also have started The Orthodox Conundrum YouTube channel, and this episode will be available there as well. The Orthodox Conundrum is looking for sponsors, either to promote your business or organization, or in someone's honor or memory. If you want to reach thousands of listeners every single week, write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com. Thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers who have access to bonus Jewish Coffee House podcasts, merch, and more. You should join our Patreon team too. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, if you don't have a podcast, you're missing out on the best new way to reach hundreds and thousands of engaged listeners. But if you want to start a podcast, you need to make sure that it's really good, both in terms of content and production values, so that you will be noticed among all the other podcasting options out there. 
If you have opinions that you want to share with a large group of people or a growing business that's looking for a great new marketing tool or an organization that's looking to reach hundreds and thousands of captivated listeners, you should have a podcast and one that is of the highest quality and we can help you make that happen. Contact me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jchpodcast.com to learn how we can help you make a high quality, effective and entertaining podcast. Rabbi Aaron Leibowitz is the founder and president of Hashkacha Pratit, an organization which broke the monopoly of the chief rabbinate of Israel over kosher supervision. Its new project, Chupot, challenges the monopoly by providing Orthodox weddings independent of the rabbinut. Ordained by Rabbi Shlomo Riskin and Rabbi Chaim Bravender in 1996, he currently serves as the rabbi of the Va'anit Fila community in Nachlaot Yushalayim. Rav Aaron served as a Jerusalem City Council member in the previous term, representing the pluralistic Yushalmim party and holding the education portfolio. Rabbi Aaron Leibowitz, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum podcast. It's my pleasure, Scott. Happy to be here. Let's start off by talking about the kashrut arm of Hashkacha Pratit, which was designed to break the Rabbanut's hold on kashrut. Now, as far as I understand it, that organization has actually divided. Now, I believe it's part of Sohar. You can tell me if I'm wrong about that. I want to start off by asking why you created this organization dealing with kashrut. We'll deal with other issues soon. But what problems were you trying to solve initially? So our work in Kashrut was, was really where we, I suppose, cut our teeth, so to speak, and learned what it was that we were, um, that we were looking to, uh, to be, to become. Um, although we made an exit from Kashrut, and what was called Ashkacha Pratit today is called Tsohar Pikuach Bazaon. It's being run by, by Tsohar. Um, at the time, and we're talking about 2011, 2012. I was a, a local neighborhood activist in Yerushalayim. I was the rabbi of a shul. I was a rosh yeshiva. Um, and I was dealing with neighborhood issues. And I discovered a coffee shop in our neighborhood, which claimed they were kosher, but for some reason they refused to work with the rabbanut. And I began to sit down and have conversations with, with them, with, which really grew out of a communal need, a communal desire to connect with this great new coffee shop, which was the place to be. Uh, in, in the neighborhood. What I discovered was that the kosher supervision of the Rabbanut in Yerushalayim had a terrible reputation. I discovered um, restaurants. This particular cafe introduced me to restaurant owners who had struggled with price hikes, who had struggled with strong-arming behaviors by, um, by mashkichim, who had struggled with mashkichim taking food without asking permission, um, and also some restaurants where the mashkichim did not show up. Now, after researching this for a while, I discovered that actually the state comptroller, Mevakera Medina, had published a couple of reports on, on the, the Rabbanut of Yerushalayim. But I suggested to this coffee shop, uh, how about, I mean, I'm a rabbi in the community. My congregants would like to frequent your simple coffee shop establishment. How about if I give it a shkacha? I was also teaching in the, at that time. I was teaching Israel I was teaching a group of young rabbinic students the long laws of Kashrut. And I was like, this is the perfect, this is the perfect field work that I can do with them. It only took a few short months, first of all, to discover that Kashrut is not a homework assignment for a yeshiva bacher. It's a professional kosher supervision, it's a professional pursuit. And I found some seasoned professionals in the Kashrut industry to mentor, to mentor those first steps. But three months later, we had four restaurants under our supervision. We had hired a mashkicha, um, and that was also one of the unique things that we did. We hired a woman to serve in the role as, uh, of mashkichat kashrut. 
who had been trained, interestingly enough, by Emuna women, who had just finished a course for Mashkichot Kashrut, and the Rabbanut weren't hiring these newly trained professionals. To make a long story short, it was actually Rachel Azaria, who at that point was a city councilwoman in Jerusalem and, and afterwards became a Chavrat Knesset, who, uh, who pointed out that this was a really a national issue and not a local issue, and um, helped us raise the first funds to turn it into a, into, into a project. Uh, six years later, we were in five different cities in Israel. We had uh, over 50 establishments. And at that point, after a second hearing in Supreme Court, and, and Sohar began to express interest, we transferred the, the Kashrut over, over to Tsar. Let me ask about that. When you say hearings in the Supreme Court, the legal matter that you were contesting or, was, or you were being brought to court about, what is that legal matter? So the way the, the monopoly over Kashrut works, and still works today, although there have been some changes, some, some very good changes, but the way it works is it's a monopoly over the word kosher. You can't print the word kosher without a certificate from the Rabbanut. So what we did is we gave certificates we simply didn't use the word kosher. We said we certify that this establishment follows halakha as it pertains to food and its preparation. <laughs> so... We said kosher without using the K-word or the chaf words, so to speak. And that was disputed in, in Supreme Court. We actually did not bring the case. We opposed the case. It was the reform movement who brought the case before the Supreme Court. They actually recruited two of our restaurants as plaintiffs. And everything we did to get the restaurants to back off, we were unsuccessful. And they petitioned the court for the right to use the word kosher. And we told them that they're going to lose and they're going to make it worse. And they lost and they made it worse because the Rabbanut's position was not only should the word kosher be prohibited, but anything that implies kosher should be prohibited. And the Supreme Court ruled like the Rabbanut, disqualifying all of our all of our tu'udot. And we had a very difficult two years where our tu'udot were not being displayed in restaurants. And all we had was a list similar to what you'll find in Europe or uh, you know other parts of the world. And we lost a lot of restaurants as a result of that. But, if, uh, but in a beautiful sign of Ashkacha Pratit, we, uh, we received a second, the, the, the reform movement received a second hearing. And actually in the second hearing, they lost again. They uh, did not <laughs> receive the right to use the word kosher. But that second court hearing, which was actually before seven justices, which is very unusual, gave a green light to our workaround. And that's when Sohar decided to enter into the into the business. Let me ask you, Rabbi Leibowitz, in terms of the Rabbanut's position and in terms of the Supreme Court's initial position, and perhaps latter position as well, I'm sure there's a lot of politics, but at least on the surface, or at least on some level, what's the logic behind saying that the Rabbanut has a monopoly on the K-word, on the word kosher? So the head of the court, the head of that tribunal was Rubinstein, and he he clearly felt, and um, two of the justices felt very clearly that it was in the interest of the kosher consumer that kashrut be regulated, and that that was the purpose of the law. Uh, our counterclaim was that the rabbanut doesn't represent the kosher consumer. The rabbanut represents the ultra orthodox community. It's controlled by the ultra orthodox community, and that relates to the work that we're doing today. That the Rabbanut Harashit Li Israel, which is supposed to serve all of Am Israel in Israel, and some would say internationally, is is actually an interest group. It actually represents and is controlled by a by a very narrow interest group who have a very extreme and fundamentalist interpretation of the boundaries of halacha, much more um, 
conservative with a small c than your average Orthodox Israeli, uh, certainly than your average modern Orthodox Israeli. Just to make sure I understand, there already have been for many years other kashrut organizations outside the purview of the Rabbanut, the various badatz organizations which put their hachsherim on all sorts of restaurants and products. Tell me if I'm correct. Is the big difference here that a badatz has to use their hachsher in addition to the Rabbanut hachsher as opposed to instead of it, whereas Hashkacha Pratit was going and bypassing the Rabbanut and not also having a Rabbanut hachsher. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. You can't use the word kosher without a Rabbanut certificate, but once you have that certificate, you can bring in another agency. Now, the irony of this situation is that we know that reliable kashrut over time can only be maintained in a competitive environment. Um, reliable and effective kashrut. The irony is, is that the Haredi community have developed their own private market of, of, of a higher level of kashrut, which is competitive. It's competitive in pricing, it's competitive in standards, it's competitive in re- reliability, and yet they maintain a stranglehold over the basic level of kashrut. And um, many of them, many of them um, won't, even, won't even eat the food that's produced in those places. So so they know full well that competition is good for kashrut. If competition was not good for kashrut, they would not be allowing it in their own in their own courts to meet their own needs. You know what we really set out to do was to was to build a competitive market in basic level kashrut that that kashrut without any chumras, without any leniencies either uncalled for leniencies, but it should be a base level kashrut. There should be a competitive market where the consumer can can determine um, who they want to rely on. I mean, I would say. The, first of all, the Rabbanut have made significant improvements over the last um, five or six years, which our detractors often point out. What they miss is that many of those improvements were made because of the threat that we that, that we created, and because of the noise and the stories, the story that was told. In addition, um, the former Ministry of Religion, Matan Kahana, did succeed in pushing through the first step of his reform. So there is competition now in the basic kashrut market. The competition is between the local religious councils. What they did is they, uh, until this reform began, you could only get a kosher certificate from your local religious council, which meant there was no competition. Today, a restaurant in Jerusalem who's not happy with his mashkiach can go, for instance, to Moitzadatit of um, Gush Etzion and ask them to supervise his establishment. So, so there's been a, a significant improvement. Unfortunately, it's still only Moitzadatiot that can give kashrut, and that also has to change. Okay. Just one last question about Kashrut before we move on to other topics. Did the Supreme Court deal with the issue that there is, as you mentioned, corruption throughout many of the supervisors when they, as you said, take their own food or perhaps demand money? I don't know exactly what is done. Did that matter to them when when the court said, well, this is in the interest of the consumer? There's a previous uh, Supreme Court ruling on the conflict of interest, which is created when the restaurant pays the mashkiach and not the kashrut agency. Under the Rabbanut system, the mashkiach is actually employed by the restaurant. And Supreme Court ruled years before we even brought our case to, to the court that, that Rabbanut has to resolve that issue and find a different system. And the Rabbanut dragged its feet for, for well over a decade and did not make any changes in that regard. The, the case which which we were involved in, the case which revolved around our two did not relate to the issues of corruption. And indeed, the Rabbanut have this recurring chorus. Of course, there's a lot to fix. Of course, it's not perfect. Of course, we have... Um, and, and, you know, they don't even deny that the system is broken. Uh, and, and the real question is not 
do you admit it needs to be fixed, but what have you done to actually change it? And very, and the answer is very little. Just one last question. I know I said I was going to move on, but is that still the case right now that the restaurants pay the mashkiach directly rather than paying the rabbinate? Because that seems to be ripe for corruption. Yeah. So, so that's actually changed over the last couple of years, but it's a change in process. Um, again, it's an implementation of a ruling, which was a long time coming. Um, right now, there are manpower firms, what we call here Chevrot Koach Adam, which specialize in paying the mashgichim and pooling the money from the restaurants for the service um, so that there's been a kind of one level of separation. But clearly, it creates a bureaucratic nightmare and also very, very little ability to, to, to address the quality of service. In other words, the manpower firm is not the one who's supervising the mashgiach, who's actually making sure that he's doing a good job. So, you know, in, in, in Sahar, which follow the model that we developed 100%, um, the mashgichim are paid by the, or, by the kashrut organization, the same way um, as the OU or the Chafke or any reputable um, kashrut agency. And in that way, the kashrut agency, first of all, can adopt a service-oriented relationship towards the establishment. Um, it can adopt a transparency and commitment to high standards um, when, when addressing the consumer's needs. And it can develop a professional workforce who are, who, who are employed by, their, by the same entity who, who pay them and provide them with their professional, professional know-how and support. It just seems strange to me that the rabbinut would somehow resist that, meaning even from the perspective of the local rabbinate of a given city, if they have a choice of the restaurant paying their mashkichim directly versus paying them and then they pay the mashkiach, I would assume they'd prefer the latter. And obviously that's less corrupt. It's a win-win. I'm not quite sure why they would resist anything to do with changing it that way. The implication is, is, that, they, is that they don't have the infrastructure to support that kind of a financial burden because it's huge. But, you know, I find that questionable. It's not really a compelling argument. I think what's much more likely is that it's it's been very convenient for them. See, it's important to appreciate the interest that Rabanut has in the Kashrut industry is not a financial interest, a direct financial interest. It's because it provides endless jobs with very low demand, very low requirements, both in terms of skill level and actually in terms of performance. In other words, there are thousands of yeshiva bacharim and yeshiva students who are employed as mashkichei kashrut and get their paycheck for a, for a job which requires very little training and has very little uh, oversight in terms of performance. Um, that's what they don't want to lose. Why do they care? I mean, seriously, they're not an employment agency. Why do they care if lots of yeshiva bachars have jobs that way? You're treating the rabbanut as if it's a as if it exists in a vacuum and doesn't represent the broader social and political agenda of the Haredi community. The Haredi community as a community, the leadership of the Haredi community are very concerned with the potential, with the parnassah of their constituents. It's a drop in the bucket in terms of the needs of the whole community, but it's a tremendous resource to provide people who are, who are, have relationships. You know, there's a lot of cronyism that goes on and uh, one more thing, which I should say, you know, um, I'm, I'm sharing information which is public record in terms of the corruption, but it's important to be aware that the more, that, the, that these religious councils are local, and some cities are better than others. So it's by no means meant to color all of the rabbanut or all of the mashkichim negatively. It's speaking about a phenomenon that is very, very widespread and needs to be stopped. Okay, thank you. Let's move on to Chupot which is an arm of your organization, Hashgacha Pratit, that arranges weddings outside the purview of the Rabbanut. 
once again, the same question I asked about Kashrut, I'll ask about Chupot. What was the reason that this was necessary? And I realize that's a very big question. So we were actually chafing at the bit to begin working in marriage during the Kashrut years. And because it was clear to us and, and also to our board that it would be more controversial, we were holding back, which was one of the reasons the opportunity to make the exit to Tsar was so attractive to us, because we were ready, we were ready to move on to something which is a much more which is higher stakes. And yeah, we've we've noticed that pun, the pun that's there, higher stakes than Kashrut. But we also felt that the pain point was was deeper and was doing more damage to my mind, to Torah and to Hashem's name. Um, the fact that um, in Israel, an Israeli citizen cannot marry um, whoever he wants, however they want, I think is a travesty, which to, certainly to the American intuition is very clear. I mean, imagine if you were a citizen of a country and you were told, no, you may not get married here to anyone. And if you choose to get married, you have to do it our way. So marriage is a very, very personal moment. It's also a very um, public and social um, institution. Um, and those two facts create a tension between a person's individual vision and a person's individual rights. And also this, the, the desire society has to regulate what it means to be married and, and who is married and who is not. The fact that, that Israel has basically perpetuated an Ottoman law the law of marriage in Israel uh, comes, uh, uh, was written during the Ottoman rule of, of Israel, and it gave the religious institutions the authority over marriage in their respective religions. And because Israel adopted that law, um, the Rabbanu Tarashit, the chief rabbinate of Israel, have all have full authority over the marriage of Jews in Israel, only of Jews, because that Ottoman law says each religion, its own religious institutions, have the authority. So it raises a range of issues. On the most basic level, and the issue I alluded to already, if you have somebody who's, who's an Israeli citizen and is not recognized by the rabbinate as being Jewish, he is not allowed to get married in Israel to another Jew. So you have right now up close to a half a million immigrants from the former Soviet Union, many of whom are not halakhically Jewish and many of whom are halakhically Jewish, but have not established that they're halakhically Jew Jewish to the standards that the rabbinate requires. And the only way they can get married is a civil marriage abroad, which is unconsciousable um, to my mind. But that's not the only issue. There are other issues. There are Orthodox converts converted by modern Orthodox Batei Din, who the Rabbanut doesn't recognize as, as being kosher Batei Din, who also cannot get married in Israel. There are couples of, let's say, a Kohen and a Grusha, a Kohen and a divorcee, or a Kohen and a convert, who are not marriageable according to Halakha, and who we would also not, not perform the wedding, but who want to get, you know, one of, one of the potential uh, heterim from, let's say, a, a modern Orthodox rabbi, a less strict rabbi, to get married, and that avenue isn't open to them. There are, there are such avenues, avenues which can question the Kohen status of the man who is a Kohen, or who can, or who can question the con conversion status or the divorce status of the woman who's converted. And these are chuvot which have been written classically by great poskim in the past. When you have a situation where they are kshurim ba'avotot ahava, where a couple are already in love and are going to get married, 
there is a tradition in the halakha to do everything we can to find a way to permit them because they're going to get married anyway. But of course, that's not the Haredi, it's not the ultra-Orthodox culture to, in any category, do everything you can to permit something. On the contrary, the culture, the cultural milieu, um, certainly when it comes to the general public, it's very different, by the way, when it comes to someone they know or a family member or somebody who knows the right post game. When it comes to the attitude towards the general public, the attitude is chumrah, is to be strict. In addition, there are many issues which have to do with women's rights and women's issues, where the rabbanut have been very have been very reluctant, if not obstinate, in addressing. So, you know, for instance, there is a, a document called the halachic prenup to prevent get refusal. Um, get refusal is a misnomer; it should be called get extortion. Um, and there is a the, that such docu- documents exist and are even required, I believe, by the RCA, or at least or at least almost required by the RCA. The Rabbanut refuses to allow them. Well, Rabbi Leibowitz, just I don't think they don't refuse to allow them. If I, my daughter got married, she had a halachic prenup, and as far as I know, she's registered without a problem. That's true. But if she would have raised it with the registrar and the Rabbanut, they would have given her a hard time. In other words, okay. the halachic prenup can be signed outside. Um, the only exception to that rule is Tzohar, and, we, and I think we should speak about Tzohar at some point because Tzohar is a unique situation when it comes to marriage. But the Rabbanut are on the record that they don't recognize the validity of them and they view that them as being negative and it's been discussed. Now, maybe I should maybe I should make clear. To my mind, for an Orthodox rabbi to perform a wedding without a halachic prenup is malpractice. Certainly if he hasn't very carefully explained to the woman what kiddushin, what halachic marriage means to her future, um, if there hasn't been full disclosure, and I would say even with full disclosure, I, I, would, I for one would never perform a chuppah without a halachic prenup because I don't want to have um, this dynamic of get extortion on my conscience in the future. Um, I also don't believe a young couple are positioned to make that decision themselves. I believe that, that we as society should make it for them and it should be our generation's equivalent of, of ketubah. Can I ask you a question about this then? You've said a lot that's very, very important. When you said at the very beginning, I found it fascinating that you felt the current system is against the Torah, the way that it's currently being set up, the fact that so many couples cannot marry in Israel. I'm curious how far you would take that, because you mentioned, for example, a Kohen and a divorcee, that there are halachic mechanisms, if they're going to get married anyway, for us to find a way to bidiyavad after the fact, or before after the fact, so to speak, to find a way to allow them to get married anyway, since it's going to happen. In some cases, not in all. In some cases, right. There are mechanisms that are potentially there. But on the other hand, you mentioned the Olim from Russia, and there are many people there who are not halachically Jewish, although they consider themselves Jewish. They serve in the Israeli army. As far as they're concerned, they're 100% Jewish, though I'm not talking about people who are in doubt. I mean, people who genuinely are not Jewish. We know they had a Jewish father and a non-Jewish mother. So do you believe they should get married according to the laws of the state of Israel to a Jew? Should that be permitted also? So first of all, they are getting married according to the laws of state of uh, the state of Israel to Jews. They're simply traveling to Cyprus, doing a, doing a civil marriage in Cyprus, and coming back to Israel and registering. I think there's a huge difference between, between chuppah v'kidushin, the halachic institution of marriage, and the civil institution of marriage. The civil institution of marriage is a civil right, which every citizen deserves. And the fact that we have created this misleading uh, fiction that there is no civil marriage in Israel by requiring people to get on a plane. And by the way, today they don't even have to get on a plane. Today they can get on Zoom to Utah and, and, right. and have a civil marriage on Zoom in Utah. It's, it's a disgrace to Israel. 
And when I said before that it's a chidul Hashem, it's a disgrace to God, it's because the reason I feel it's a disgrace to God is it paints the Torah and God as being obsessed with controlling the lives of individuals who are, cho- who are choosing to opt out. It paints God as if God is sitting in, in Shemaim and wringing his hands and saying, what are we going to do about these olim? From, you know, the olim are here. And they are citizens of Israel. Now, whether you agree with the laws that, that, that gave them that citizenship, that's something which is under public debate now, and that's a separate issue. But for us to be holding on to this stranglehold, lest they do in front of an Israeli clerk what they're already doing in front of a clerk in Utah, and, and somehow saying that this brings God some kind of nachat, some kind of pleasure, I think is, I think is um, wrong. Wouldn't some people argue, perhaps, that it still acts as a deterrent. Perhaps now that things have changed and they can just get on Zoom and go to Utah virtually, things might be different. But when the law was that the best they could do was go to Cyprus or some other country and come back with a marriage certificate, perhaps someone would say that before they ever fall in love or date someone who's halakhically not Jewish, that would serve as a deterrent. I realize once they're already in love, it might be too late. But in advance, perhaps a non-religious Israeli would say, yes, but I want to marry a Jew. And now, if we say legally it's allowed, that deterrent has been removed. So I would say anyone asking that question is a little disconnected from the reality on the ground in Israel. And I think for a lot of the listeners to this podcast, it's important to clarify. We're not talking here about half a million Russians who barely speak Hebrew who just got off the plane. We're talking here about about three generations of Aliyah and their children and their grandchildren who are fluent Hebrew speakers who are growing up in the Israeli school system, who are serving in the army, who very often don't even discover that their Jewish status is in question until they get to the point of marriage, when they've already fallen in love with somebody and they're already dating them. I do not believe that ever in the history of the state of Israel has there been a single Israeli who has has decided not to date someone because because they will not be allowed to marry them in Israel. I thought that's not how people work. The, The bottom line is, is that is that this issue is already is already here? Um, it's 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 not reversible, and the best that we can hope to do, first of all, is identify those olim who are halachically Jewish, identify them now, um, and also uh, um, identify those who are not halachically Jewish, create a, a an alternative form of marriage for them, an alternative alternative of civil marriage, and I am for civil marriage in Israel. Um, I just want to make, make that clear. That's not, by the way, a, a formal position of Chupot. That's my, of Hashkacha Pratit. That's my position. We have different we have different opinion, opinions on this in the organization. Um, I am for civil marriage, and I think that we need to create an institution of civil marriage. And I also think we need to make, create a more accessible path to conversion. I think that many of these Russian immigrants or children of of Eastern Europe, of immigrants from Eastern Europe, many of them would be completely open to conversion. They're just not willing to excuse me, lie in Beitin, that they're going to be fully observant. And it's a, it's a huge machloket. There's a big halachic conversation around whether full acceptance of Torah of mitzvot is required for conversion. Um, and here I think that there's room in Israel to have to revisit that. And I think that it, that, that it should be revisited. By the way, even those those who are converting in the Israeli rabbinic courts, m- many of them are not don't intend to keep Torah of mitzvot, and the Dayanim who convert them also know it. And they're converting them based on a halacha that says that varim shabalev and varim that things that are in your heart. All that matters is that they say, 
And, and that also to me is a chilul Hashem. I mean, imagine the experience of this convert who's being told, you know, with a wink and a nudge, just go in and say you're going to keep it and we'll convert you. And that's the difference between the person who halachically would allow me to get married and the person who are not. It's, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and I know that your colleague, Rabbi Chuck Davidson, has dealt a lot with the conversion issue in particular. I probably should get him on the podcast again. It's been a few years. I know that's an area of particular expertise of his. I want to ask you about something you mentioned a couple minutes ago when you said that the chief rabbinate is working with a Haredi mindset, which is, in general, much more machmir, much stricter when it comes to a lot of these issues. As I understand it, and I don't know the history extremely well, but before the election of the first Rabbi Lau about 30 years ago, a little less than that, the rabbinate was generally run by more datilu umi people. Not necessarily so, but for example, Rav Avraham Shapiro was his predecessor. People were often more in the Datilumi world or associated with Merk Hazharav, associated with national religious institutions on some level, at least as I understand it, until that changed in the early 90s. You can tell me if that's true or not. And if it is true, does that mean that some of the problems with Humrah, with strictness that have come up, are products of the past 30 years, or have they been a problem since 1948? I don't identify the difference between a Machmir or a Mekil a strict or a lenient rabbinate as paralleling the lines of modern orthodoxy or Haredi or Datilu Umi, religious Zionist and Haredi, ultra-orthodox. I don't think that those are the lines. I think that those lines relate to, they, they can relate sometimes to stringency and halacha, but I think that there are Haredi poskim who are extremely lenient. There were ultra-orthodox poskim who are extremely lenient. Rav Avadia Yosef um, it was a good example. In the U.S., Rav Moshe Feinstein was a, was a good example. Um, and the reason they were Mekil is because they understood that there's a difference between their role as the rabbi of their community and, the, and, and, the, and let's say perhaps the leader of their family and their own halachic decisor, and their role as a gadol in Am Yisrael, a great leader in Am Yisrael. A gadol in Am Yisrael, and this was the greatness, both of Rav Avadia and Rav Moshe. And Rav Moshe. They understood that 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 that, the, that Am Yisrael were facing challenges which required leniencies. By the way, sometimes they actually required stringencies, which were leniencies. So, instead of Rav Moshe Feinstein's paskening that every reform and conservative wedding is not kosher by definition, was a was a chumra which was a kula to solve. It, it, it solved many 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 huge issues for American Jewry. So that vision is what I think would make somebody potentially fit to be a Rav Rashili Israel. Because if, and, if, and there's a huge difference, for, in, for instance, between my own practice, and I'm also the rabbi of a shul. If someone in my shul would come to me and ask me a question pertaining to their wedding, I might give them a different answer than the answer I give a couple that I'm serving in Chupot. I think that when, when you're serving a non-Orthodox community, and I think many rabbis in North America, who serve communities with large non-Orthodox memberships would appreciate this. When you're serving a non-Orthodox community, it's imperative that you be as lenient as possible in order to make Torah relevant to them. In other words, even if you think that a machmir position might be more intellectually honest or called for or praiseworthy or holy, um, when somebody who's not committed to the system is asking you a shayla, what's behind that question is not only can you be lenient on this point, what's, what's behind that question is, is Torah relevant to me as well? Can it be relevant to me as well? And that to me is the big misfire of the chief rabbinate. 
I don't imagine that the solution will be a rabbi with a, a chief rabbi with a kippah sruga. There are plenty of chief rabbis with a kippah sruga who don't have this kind of a vision. Um, and I also believe that there are Haredi rabbis, there are ultra orthodox rabbis who do appreciate this perspective. And I've spoken to many, and many of them, by the way, um, give us a pat on the back for the work for the work that we're doing because they're also heartbroken. I'll give you an example: Rav Salem, who's a, who was a student of Rav Avadia Yosef and certainly identifies with the Haredi worldview, um, is aghast at where the chief rabbinate have taken halacha. I'm curious, a lot of the work that you're doing with Chupot, as I understand it, is criminal, technically. Is that true or am I wrong? Like, it's technically against the law. Okay, so I'm going to modify your sentence. I will say a certain amount or even a small amount of the work we're do- doing with doing in Chupot is is challenging the law. Okay, can you explain what you um, mean by and that? Maybe, and maybe outside the law. So... What the law says, the law, the law, by the way, was written terribly, and that's that's the saving grace. Um, it was written, it's, it's written like it was written 15 minutes before they voted on it on the Knesset floor, and that might be what actually happened. <laughs> it wouldn't be a shock. It <laughs> slipped in. It's actually slipped into a different tikkun chok, a different uh, amendment of the. It was an amendment that was going through to allow Tzohar to to function as a rabbinate clearinghouse countrywide. It's called chok Tzohar. That's what it's coined. And when Chokzor passed, they slipped in a clause. The law itself said that any rabbinate can perform weddings for any anyone in the state of Israel. And because Rav Stav is the head of Shoham, and because Rav Riskin um, was the chief rabbi of Efrat, so they had two Moitzot two religious councils. And this allowed Sohar to do weddings anywhere in Israel. They slipped in a clause that said... You mean effectively as an extension of those local communities effectively as an extension of those local communities and allowing Tsar to do the extremely important task of making a more friendly, a user-friendly experience for the non-religious Israeli. At the same time, they are rabbinic weddings and they're not allowed to deviate from rabbinic policies, which, which, um, which explains why chupot is needed. Um, in other words, it's a, it's a friendlier experience. It's user-friendly. It's, it's done worlds. It's a Kiddush Hashem, but it doesn't solve the hardcore issues. They slipped in a clause. The clause says any couple who get married with an Orthodox wedding, Kedat Moshevi Yisrael, and don't concern themselves with registering said wedding. That's literally what it says. Okay. Are, 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 it's punishable by two years in prison for the rabbi and the couple. Nowhere does it define what it means to concern oneself with registration. Nowhere does it define who is authorized to register a wedding. These things are all left. left. So, so they tried to, to create this, this law. But what happened is um, a couple of years ago, I think this, this, let's go back like five years, they tried to arrest, investigate a conservative rabbi in Haifa, Dubi Chayun. He's a conservative rabbi, but like many conservative rabbis, he's mostly halachic, and his weddings are probably kosher. And he was doing private weddings, and the and the police knocked on his door at 5 a.m. and told him to present himself at 10 in the local station for investigation. Well, they didn't know Rav Duby very well. I, I I didn't know him then either. Since then, I've 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 met him. They knocked on his door at 6 a.m. by the 7 a.m. news. It was a it was on the news that morning. It he was, was ready front, for this, in other words. It was the front pages in the newspapers. It was and by 10 a.m. The state attorney had a written position that that law is not enforceable. 
and the investigation was canceled. He gave, he, he gave the directive to cancel the investigation. Back to the specifics of your question. The couples whose weddings we perform who are not eligible for marriage in Israel, those are for sure legal. And that's about a third of the weddings that we do. The weddings of couples that we do who, in the chuppah, do things that are permitted by, let's say, a, a liberal Masada Kiddushin, but we, would be prohibited by the Rabbanut. For instance, we have women performing chuppot, women who have been ordained by, let's say, Yeshivat Maharat, or Midrashat Lindenbaum, or, um, or, or, or Beit Midrash Harel. There are ordained women rabbinic figures. We've, we, we, we've chosen to call them Rabbaniyot, but the title, I'm sure you've had a podcast on, what, on, on this particular question already in, the, in your series. Um, the Rabbanut would not recognize those weddings. And also, more than half our couples, in addition to a chuppot wedding, register abroad with a civil marriage. They, they do a civil marriage abroad and they register, which fulfills the requirement of the law. They concern themselves with getting their marriage registered. They just didn't do it in the usual way. So there's a small amount of the weddings that we do, which theoretically could fall under this clause, which the state attorney has already said is not enforceable. We'd like to see them try and throw a rabbi or a couple in jail for getting married. Maybe if there's a clause, if they pass a law that says that the Knesset can overturn decisions by the Supreme Court, um, it'll become more of a complex question. Uh, Right now, it's not really a complex question. The other thing which I would say is that um, by Kashrut also, um, for years we were accused of acting illegally. And then when when it reached Supreme Court, it became clear it was legal. We did have a short period where we were receiving letters from the tax authorities okay. questioning our tax-exempt status um, because we're engaged in, in activity which is, which is questionably, questionable in terms of its legality. And after th- three letters back and forth, they confirmed our tax-exempt status. So even the tax authorities were convinced that we're, what we're doing is kosher. <laughs> okay. Let me ask about the Rabbanut itself. Because organizations like Rav Stav's Sohar or by Seth Farber's E-Team organization work with the rabbinate. They work alongside them, trying to work together to reform certain elements of it, but they don't try to bypass the rabbinate. Chupot and Hashkacha Pratit is clearly working by bypassing the rabbinate and doing something outside of its purview. So my question really is, is the rabbinate redeemable or do you feel that this is the future everyone should try and go outside the rabbinate. Do you think that we should try to work with the rabbinate in general, or should we avoid that altogether and simply work outside as much as possible to undermine it? So I think that Saar have done, have, have you know, provided a really important re- revolution and a really important step in their time. I think it's time to, to, go, far, to go further. The team are crucial because you still have plenty of people who want to work within the system, and you also have plenty of people who need to work within the system. And Itim are, are, um, are wizards at problem solving, and they've built, you know, uh, Rav Shaul has built tremendous inroads. And by the way, he's also a very vocal critic of all the same things that we criticize. I think what we have is a symbiotic relationship, both with Saar and with Itim. Um, Itim, by the way, I think would agree with that on the record. Sohar might not agree with that on the record, but we, but Sohar refer couples to us. Sohar have couples who they cannot marry and they know are halakhically marriageable and they refer them to chuppot. So I think each of these institutions has its place and has its time. Um, the advantage of, of Hashkacha Pratit, of our Amuta, is because our modus operandi is to challenge, is to go out on the, on the limb and challenge the establishment 
we have much less to lose um, than Itim and, and, and SAR, which are built on a certain level of public legitimacy. But when you have that public legitimacy, you can't take controversial, controversial positions because it jeopardizes your standing. And I, and I will say, many of the funders of, of Tsohar and of Itim fund Hashkachar Pratit as well. In other words, the, the, the appreciation is, is that this is a, a battle which requires, which needs to be addressed on all fronts. What all three of us agree about, agree on, by the way, both Tsohar and Itim and Hashkachar Pratit, is that the Rabbanut, as it appears today, is terribly broken. Robert Leibowitz, what do you do when a couple comes to you, that you agree is halachically unable to get married? Let's say, for example, a Kohen in a divorcee where you can't use one of the mechanisms to declare that he's not a Kohen, for example, or a couple that wants to intermarry. What do you advise them? Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, the, the, I'll add a third, a third group to that. If a gay couple comes to comes to That was us, my next question. Married. Okay, so... I mean, I, I tell them regrettably, they're they're not eligible for chupa v'kiddushin according to to halachic to halachic standards to our halachic standards, and I recommend that they speak with the with the conservative movement or the reform movement or consider a civil marriage abroad. I also encourage them to consider the possibility of um, of living as a couple under common law, which which exists in Israel, what we call yiduim b'tzibur, um, which is an institution which gives them all the say, all the rights as, as a married couple. But it's clear that, that they're not... I think that, that it's an opportunity for a tremendous Kiddush Hashem because when you reject someone, you can reject them in a way which makes them feel judged or you can reject them in a way which makes them simply appreciate that what you offer is not for them. And I think it makes a huge difference. That leads to an interesting question, Rabbi Leibowitz, because some people would say that on the one hand, the importance of not judging somebody, the potential sanctification of God's name that comes from putting a positive face and not judging could be counterbalanced by attempting to convince them, don't intermarry. You're destroying a Jewish line. For example, let's say a couple is coming to you, one person is Jewish and the other person is not Jewish. Let's not even say that we're talking about a Russian who considers himself Jewish. Let's say it's somebody who is fully not Jewish and has no intention of being Jewish and doesn't identify as Jewish in any way. So there's no hope in the future of that person necessarily even converting. So to go and tell them, I'm not judging you. Some people would say, of course, we have to judge them and convince them, if we can, not to do it. How would you respond to that? I think if someone came to me and one of them was, you know, one of them was practicing another religion or didn't identify as Jewish, then clearly I would, I would try and open a deeper conversation and explore whether there was room to create a shift. I don't know if I would immediately try to create a shift, but explore whether there was room to create a shift, um, either to reconsider the relationship or to, or to consider conversion. You know, sincere conversion, not just mm-hmm. technical conversion. I think that when you're dealing with somebody who is who views themselves as being Jewish, but they're not halachically Jewish, um, the conversation there is a conversation about the potential for conversion, and that 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 I always share with them. I tell them, you know, we we um, I can introduce if you're interested in converting, and you, and the reason you've decided not to is because of the stories you've heard about the rabbanut. I can introduce you to private bateidin. Whether it's Giorka Halacha or Ahavat Hager of Rav Salem or Rav Chuck's um, private Ambedin, um, which does conversions, so that's certainly there's certainly room for that. But I will say that I'm not I, I'm not looking to sour their encounter with Torah by making them feel like I have an agenda to proselytize or to reject. I understand. You mentioned before referring a couple to a non-Orthodox stream of Judaism. What's your feeling, Rabbi Leibowitz, about 
non-Orthodox weddings in Israel. Do you think that they should be allowed as well? I'm talking about a Reform rabbi having the right to marry a couple. Yes, absolutely. My feeling that civil marriage should be should be allowed um, is actually is actually looking for a for, for a mechanism where we can maintain some sort of registry of who's been married and how they've been married. Because, you know, clearly if there are reform and conservative weddings taking place in Israel, it's important to know who is married according to halakha and who's not married according to halakha. You know, having a record of who's married according to halakha would enable us to support the giving of a get if they get divorced and prevent the potential for Mamzei Ruth in the future. Again, keep in mind, I don't really think that that whether conservative or reform weddings are happening in Israel is is up to me. Um, there are reform weddings happening. In, by the way, there are reform weddings and conservative weddings happening in Israel today, and they're actually legal. <laughs> in other words, the only weddings that are that are questionable in terms of the legality are Orthodox weddings. Kedat Moshe Yisrael. So, what do you mean by that? Why is that so? The law, which I quoted earlier, makes very clear that it's only a halachically kosher wedding, which is punishable by two years in prison. Now, a conservative or reform wedding won't be recognized, but it's not, but there's no clause that tries to render it illegal. And in some ways, some would say that it's preferable from a civil perspective to, to get married in a way which is clearly not, not orthodox. In other words, a non-halachic wedding is looked at as a type of tekes that has no legal validity or binding nature. And therefore, According to the law, they didn't do anything, and therefore nothing wrong happened, as opposed to an Orthodox wedding where there was actually a Kedushi Kedat Moshe of Israel, in which case you violated the law by doing it outside the purview of the rabbinate. Correct. Uh, the other thing which I'll say is that there's also a, um, there's, there's a huge revolution of um, Jewish identity going on in Israel, of secular um, Jewish identity and re-engagement with, uh, with Torah and Torah sources and learning and religion. You know, conservative and reform Jews in Israel are going to shul on Shabbos. They're saying Shema. They're, they're connecting. You know, I, I understand that there are many who say, clearly I prefer a secular Israeli to a reform Israeli, which is like the classic Haredi opposition to the reform movement. Uh, to me, it's not so clear. It's not so clear that, um, that the, 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 the embracing of, of secular culture which you can find in places which are completely alienated from Torah and from Jewish identity, um, are better than what we're seeing today, which is a growing sense of, Jew of Jewishness in, in, non in the non-halachic Israeli circles. You know, I once heard or read that Rav Aaron Lichtenstein's Zatzal wrote something along the lines of trying to combat the off-sighted idea that, oh, we just want reform a conservative in America or anywhere else not even in Israel, forget that, but anywhere just to cease to exist. And he said, let's think about this logically. Again, I think he was speaking about the United States. If every conservative temple shut down tomorrow, would that be good or bad for Torah Judaism? Do we really think that all those members of those shuls will now start going to their local Orthodox shtibel? Or will they simply be lost with no connection whatsoever? It was obviously implying that the latter was more likely, in which case we have to understand that while we have serious disagreements with those movements, they're not coming empty-handed with nothing to offer, and their destruction, so to speak, would be beneficial. He's saying, on the contrary, it would not be, if I understood what he said correctly. Yeah, I would say, I would say even more than that. There's a, there's a fear paradigm which, which dominates the, the uh, Haredi worldview. And it's not coincidental, I think, that they're known as Haredim. 
and they self-identify as Haredim because because it connotes a Yirat Hashem, a fear of a fear a Yirat Shemaim, a fear of heaven, an awe of heaven. But I think that it also reveals a certain aspect of sacrilege of kfira in their worldview, in which somehow God needs the people to be the gatekeepers of of the uh, purity of his uh, of his path. I think that it's a society which is feeling, which is which I have tremendous empathy for that segment of society. I think that they, first of all, I have a lot of a lot of appreciation for their authenticity, for their for their dedication, for their care, for their connect connection to learning, for their willing willingness to live um, to 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 be less consumer consumer oriented. A lot of appreciation, but it's a community that's feeling besieged by Western culture and is hunkering hunkering down and there's a lot of fear there and that fear um, trickles into this worldview which feels threatened by anybody who sees things differently than I do as opposed to appreciating that part of believing in yourself is feeling confident and safe enough to engage with people who see things differently and um, and be willing to respect them and honor them so that so so that they will be open to hearing you and respecting respecting and honoring you. They don't if they don't receive respect, they're not going to give respect back. If they don't give respect back, they're not going to be open to hearing what it is that Torah has to offer them. And that's a huge loss. Okay, this has been very interesting. Rabbi Leibowitz, one last question. If you could look into the future, 50 years into the future, and envision an ideal state of Israel vis-a-vis what you're doing now, vis-a-vis the rabbinate, how would you picture it? What would that state of Israel look like? So I'm very pessimistic about there being any chance to fix the chief rabbinate from within. The political equations are such that the Haredi community will always be the ones who will gain control over over religious issues. Um, Israelis go to the polls on economics and security, and they don't go to the polls on religion and state issues, and the politicians know it. And the equations are such that the one community who do go to the polls on religious issues are the ultra-Orthodox community. So the political equations are not going to change. What I think can change is I, th- I think there could be a grassroots shift um, away from focusing on the power of, of uh, that this monopoly gives gives the chief rabbinate a sense that we shape our our religious experience individually. You know, these are things which to Americans are obvious that we shape our religious experience on a communal level. I think that Israelis can be shifted towards appreciating that really we define our religious sensibilities and our ideals on a communal level. And I think that once, I think when things change on the ground, it creates a different, the lens becomes different. The lens becomes different in the Knesset. The lens becomes different in um, in the court. You know, my hope would be that that either the chief rabbinate will be completely, completely dismantled because it will be irrelevant, or perhaps better, there should be a, a symbolic institution similar to the, the presidency in Israel of a chief rabbi who is a holder of a certain Jewish identity for the state uh, who serves at ceremonies and, and, um, and, and public events, who serves as a, fa- a religious face of the country. You know, we've had great statesmen for the Jewish people. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, perhaps I should say, was a great statesman for the Jewish people. If Israel had Rav Rashi who appreciated that what what Hashem needs and what Torah needs is great is a great statesman who can who can bring uh, bring out the relevance of Torah and the beauty of Torah to the masses, um, and that halacha halachas should be should be left on the communal level. There should should not be legislation that is that is halachically driven. Um, and I think that when we separate, see that's a vision not of separating church and state, 
not of separate, separating religion and state, but separating halacha and state. That, I think, is an admirable goal. Well, Rabbi Aaron Leibowitz, it's been an honor to speak to you today, and I know you're doing such important work on behalf of Klal Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael. So I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and explaining what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.